in the prayer meeting, I was really keen to make sure that this was an extension of worship and not just an extra thing on top of it. So um, if you've kind of leaned out of that headspace, just feel free to lean right back in. Um, if you're going to be, you know, um, off in the stars and the clouds with Jesus uh, for the vast majority of me speaking, I'm very happy for you to do that. So uh, feel very free to just... Um, if you all look like you're sleeping, I'll just, like, assume that you're just having powerful encounters with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Power naps, exactly. Uh, sloking. So here's my question to you guys. Oh, is this going to work for me? Come on. Yes. Snazzy. Okay, so if you had to tell me what are the key characters of the gospel, what would you say? Jesus. Somebody went to Sunday school. Very good. Peter. Okay, interesting. Cool. Why Peter? Yep. Significant revelations at key moments. That's why we would say Peter. Anyone else? Paul. Okay, why Paul? He wrote a lot of letters. Yep. Big evangelist spread the, the gospel wide to Asia Minor and whatnot. Yep. Anyone else? Mary. Cool. Okay, why Mary? She gave birth to Jesus. Kudos to the lady. Like... Giving, giving birth is a difficult thing in the first place, but I can't imagine what it's like for the Son of God. Ah! Um, but <laughs> Next point. Thanks, John Luke. Um, okay. So, I want you to think of each epistle, that's Ephesians, Romans, and whatnot, and I want you to think of them as adaptations of the same story. So, the, the story being the gospel story, and you know how when you have a book or when you have a film, the, the film's a little bit different to the book, but a good adaptation doesn't leave out key characters, right? Um, I watched a really amusing adaptation of The Hobbit, which you can find on YouTube called, um, which is like a 12-minute version of the story, um, and very, very bizarre, made in the 1960s, and they called the great uh, dragon Smaug Slag the Fire Lizard, and I was like, Okay, um, so uh, you don't want to be changing the names of characters, you don't want to be removing key characters, um, and each one of these epistles makes a point of addressing the gospel in a slightly different angle based on who they're talking to. So, um, in the case of Ephesians, as you've maybe heard a good three times by now, it is mainly shaped by the audience, the Gentiles. Um, that are mainly based in Asia Minor. That's Ephesus for you. You've got Colossae, that's where Colossians was written for. Um, and then you've got your fancy Antioch and Iconium, Lystra, Perga. We could go on for a while. Um, so this audience is who Ephesians was written for. Um, these were people who did not necessarily grow up in the world of um, Hebraic tradition. Um, they didn't grow up with Abraham and Moses and stuff. These are people who grew up with Zeus and Jupiter. These were people who grew up with the cosmic stories of um, 
Zeus and the pantheon of gods on top of Mount Olympus, and Zeus at the top throwing thunderbolts at people and doing really not pleasant things. Um, so this, this is what they understand as God. This is their context into the divine, into the, the supernatural, into the enchanted world of gods, demons, angels, and cherubim and all of that sort of stuff. So, despite the fact that he doesn't, that this is his audience, in this section of Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, he goes into the story of the Gentiles and the Jews. It's his adaptation of the gospel, and for some reason in his adaptation of the gospel, the Jews and the Gentile difference is a key element of the adaptation. Now, this is a topic that in the church very often gets very strange responses and approaches. So I'm going to tread it carefully, um, but um, and what I'm going to try and do is rather than deal with all of the baggage that we come in with this particular topic, I want to look at what is Paul actually doing in his adaptation. What's his structure? What's his story? What's his process? What's his logic that he's following? So to begin with that, we begin with the beginning of Ephesians. Now, he's starting his story, right? He's starting his story of the gospel. And where does he begin it? He says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What a start to a story. God, the omnipotent, the omniscient, the all-knowing, the one who creates the stars. Not just Zeus, who is the Lord of the Pantheon. He is the God of the, the river. He is the God of the trees. He is the God of the stars. He is the God of the, of the ground. He is the God of all things, and he is in all things. The Greeks think you have a God for every individual section. You have a God of love. You have a God of this. You have a God of that. This God is the God of it all. Who has blessed you in Christ? He takes it cosmic, and he makes it personal, and he gets Christ right in the cornerstone. And then he says, he's given you every spiritual blessing. Now, either he's being hyperbolic, and he's exaggerating his point a little bit, and he's getting a bit carried away, or he actually means that the God of everything, who has everything at his disposal, who can take everything away and give everything, every spiritual blessing that he possesses in the heavenly places, he's given to you. That's a start to the gospel. Okay. And he's lifted you to the heavenly places. So, you know the pantheon of the gods? That's where you are. In fact, you're higher than that. You are in the stars. You are with the cherubim. You are with the singing angels surrounded by you. You are in the very dwelling place of God himself. 
And before the foundations of the, in the world, before this floor was made, before these pillars were made, before this whole building was made in 1897, it, before the uh, first bit of magma and lava was spat out of the first volcano as the earth was unstable in its construction, before God himself even said, let there be light, and in the vast vacuum of nothingness where all you had was a spirit hovering over the waters, where the only thing that was filling all things was his own glorious being and his own glorious light. And the, the brightness of his glory was the only thing that was known and could be known. In that place, he looked within himself and he created you. And he chose you. Before he created anything within himself, he created and chose you. He bottled everything he had in the vast galactic cosmic implications of all things, the very foundations of all things, and he chose you. So that we might be to the praises of his glory. Not, not, the, not, the, not the stars, not the, you know, if you're God and you're the God of everything, you think to yourself, how are, is my glory going to be praised? How, how am I, I've, I've, I've created the sun, I've created bigger suns, I've created VY uh, something majoris, I've got it written down here somewhere, but um, he created the vastness of everything, and he's the God of everything, and he decides that the best way for his glory to be praised is you. When he asked himself, what was the best way I could, my glory could be praised, his answer was you. That is a purpose that far exceeds simply him negating your sins. And then Paul continues and he says that Jesus placed all things under his feet. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He reigns over all things supreme. Nothing can question him. Nothing can shift him away from that position of authority. Everything that can be held is held by him. And he has placed it all under his feet and he fills all in all. That means he, everything, and then everything inside of itself has him as well. Now again, he might be hyperbolic, but I don't think he's prone to doing that. There is such a cosmic, mystical, like, oneness between you and God, creation and God, that is absolutely incredible in how he's setting this stage. And then what does he say? This guy, this God, this man God that fills all in all is the head of the church. Not the elders here, 
Not the elders in another church. Jesus is the head of the universal and complete church. And he lifts the church <laughs> above. So, he, you know, he, remember, he's, he's pretty, he's in control. And he lifts the church above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion. This is huge in its implications. Like, if we actually believe this, guys, the church has all power, all dominion given to it by Jesus, who is all in all, who is the very God that chose us and all peoples before the foundations of the earth. That's how he's setting his story. <laughs> Goodness me. So he's telling this story to people who are, again, remember, people who live with cosmic, mythical stories. They breathe Greek myth because that is their religion. That is their life. And these people need to be given something that they can supersede that with. So this isn't, he's not just simply exaggerating it for his audience. This is the gospel adapted for Gentiles. So he doesn't start with the Jewish story. He starts with the cosmic story. And then he transitions to what Tim was talking about two weeks ago, which is how he ripped us out of death. <laughs> In our trespasses and our sin, and through his great love, we are made alive in Christ. As Jesus walks out of the grave, so do we. Death has lost its final sting. Eddie is very happy right now. And that has got nothing, and this is a point he emphasizes, got nothing to do with our accomplishments. I mean, how could it? We're talking big, cosmic, implicational stuff. How could it possibly have anything to do with us? And then something really interesting happens. Then he says, like any good adaptation, you can't tell a story without the key characters. You couldn't tell it without Mary. You couldn't tell it without Peter. You couldn't tell it without Paul. And Paul says, you can't understand it without the Jewish people. Even though he's speaking to a Gentile audience, or maybe even because he's speaking to a Gentile audience, he insists that this is a key part to understand. We've gone big, we've gone cosmic, we've gone before the foundations of the earth, and the impeccable, incredible, glorious God to the Jewish people. So you, what we're saying here is the vast galactical God who made the heavens, who built its foundation, and from that foundation, this planet can fit a million times into our own sun. He made that sun. Not only did he make that sun, he also made Betelgeuse, which can also fit a good proportion of our suns into that very sun as well. And then there is even bigger suns than Betelgeuse that radiate and beam and will one day probably collapse on the pressure of their own weight 
to supernova into a vast galactical explosion. And then you have this VY Canis Majoris, which can fit a billion of our own suns. And that is just a flicker. Just a flicker of the burning glory of God. Exactly. So however you try and adapt the story of the God who makes this look like a flicker, he says, you can't get me and my story if you don't understand the little inconsequential island, uh, not island, sorry, little inconsequential tribal nation that's here. This is the Roman Empire, the glorious empire of its day. And he's saying, this little tribal nation at the edge of the Mediterranean that is inconsequential for the Romans, that is, has been ruled by foreign rulers for the last few centuries, has not even been independent, had like a little blip of a golden age, which was like two generations of kings, David and Solomon, and then after that, nothing else. That group of people are the group of people we are not able to understand the story of the gospel of the God who saves not only humanity, but the cosmos, including V.Y. Canis Majoris. The order of that very large star requires the understanding of that story itself. So what's Paul on about here? This section in Ephesians 2 mirrors exactly uh, what Tim was talking about. In Tim's version, it was about all of humanity, children of wrath, sons of disobedience against here, we zoom in on humans. And now we're not talking about the separation between humanity and God. We're talking about the separation between all humans within themselves. From alienation to union through his workmanship was the section before this. The section after this is from separation to unity amongst humanity. So I'm going to be looking at this from looking at sections not from verse by verse, but I'll be breaking this up through the particular topics he's talking about. Topic number one, strangers and aliens. So he starts this section by talking about the uncircumcision. And he uses this term slightly derisively. You know, he says... Uh, those who call themselves the circumcision call you Gentiles the uncircumcision. Those who call themselves the circumcision. He's not exactly bigging them up in that phrase. And he says, because the circumcision is really just made by hands, by the flesh, by hands, which echoes his previous point that he made in the section that Tim looked at, which is that we are his workmanship, which has nothing to do with our abilities. And obviously... I think he's maybe being a little bit on the nose by saying that you need to use your hands for the old snip-snip. Um, so, circumcision is also one of the most definitive outward signs of your Jewishness, of that you are part and grafted into the house of Israel. 
And that whole story begins with a man called Abram, which I'm sure if any of you have attended Sunday school, you'll be relatively familiar with. So God appears to this 99, oh, I feel so bad for him, 99 and he had to do circumcision. Ouch. Um, this 99-year-old man, and in the story, just the chapter before God comes to him, ha, oh, I am well pleased with you and I shall make you the the father of many nations. Literally, the chapter before this, he has royally messed up his family dynamic. He has slept with his wife's slave and birthed someone called Ishmael. Now, if that's not a demonstration that that has got very little to do with Abram's abilities. So God declares to this old man that he will be the father of many nations. He gives him a new name, calls him Abraham, which probably means father of many. And he promises him to become many nations himself. And he says, you'll get the whole fertile land of Canaan in which you are currently a stranger and an alien in. The very phrase Paul uses to describe Gentiles is the same phrase used in Genesis to describe Abraham. So this... Circumcision isn't just simply, I am now part of the people of Israel. In the, in, in the, specifically in the story of Abraham, it is the sign of the wanderer who is given a home. So despite the fact that the circumcision crowd get this derisive tone from Paul, there is, Paul starts this section with, say, remember. Now, there's a lot that the Bible tells us to forget, but there's also a few things that the Bible tells us to remember. And here he says, remember that you are of the uncircumcision. In those days, you were separated from Christ. Goodness. However, this is why we need to look at the full adaptation of the story. Where did this begin? The cosmic implications that you are grafted into the very fabric of God since the foundations of the earth. Every single human person. So when he says separated from Christ, it surely must be something a little bit more complicated than just some, if you're not part of the Jewish household, you're therefore completely got nothing to do with God and therefore you're totally depraved. So Paul, however, is drawing a direct link between being born of the nations of Abraham and a very unique relationship with God. So, originally, there was only, the only way you were able to be grafted into an intimate relationship with God, being a friend of God, was through being one of the people of Israel. The next section that he talks about, then, is the next way he describes people is that there's no hope without God. That, sorry, that you, you had no hope and were without God. Now, we are a people... Us modernists, we are people who have been born out of what was once described the existentialist movement. And when the Bible talks about no hope, it probably is not as existential as we might think it to be. Because hopelessness isn't, oh, I have no hope in my life, and what is the meaning of life, and da 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 da, da. That's a very modern way of thinking. They're probably being a bit more practical. What is your cosmic vision if you're not part of the Abrahamic covenant? What are the Greeks hoping for? Their golden age has ended. What are the Romans hoping for? The glory of Rome? 
what is, what's the implications for the cosmos of that? There is no like ingrafting, inbuilding, connecting in. His point is that because Jesus came out of Jewish tradition, he comes out of a tradition of hope. A tradition that is moving towards the union of the entire cosmos. So here we understand the separated from Christ bit a bit more. Because what Paul's doing here, he's, he's listed uh, separated from Christ, no hope with God, um, and all of these things next to each other, which is a classic Hebraic writing tool, which is to say, great way to carry a child, um, which is a great, um, a classic sort of way to repeat something and saying it in slightly different ways, but meaning the same thing. It's why what you see in Proverbs a lot of the time. Somebody's just repeating the same point, but saying it slightly differently. So what he's saying here when he says that you're separated from Christ is that you are separated from the Christ, from the anointed, from the Messiah. You are separated from the messianic promises of uh, David's promises. You're not separated from God in the sense that God has no vested interest in you because you were known before the foundations of the world, but you aren't born into the bloodline that ties you to these Davidic promises. It's not that somehow your Gentileness separates you from Christ, but that you, somehow that unique relationship, that intimate relationship that the house of Israel had with God, you had no part with. So in this chapter, section one, the story of the Gentiles and the Jews, Paul sets the stage that the Gentiles are separated from the promises of the people of Abraham, which means they don't have a genetic or natural access to Jesus and are therefore without hope. And he intermingles and juxtaposes this with the house of Israel, or as the ESV describes it, the Commonwealth of Israel. Now, he starts this by saying, the uncircumcised versus the circumcision crew, which if you read the book of Acts, you know that the whole idea that if you did new Christians need to get circumcised was the big topic of the day. Did you need to get the old snip snip, um, however old you were, and only then could you walk into the Davidic and Abrahamic and Mosaic promises? Paul insisted that you didn't. Now before we get all like, you know, classically, oh, those silly early Christian um, people of Israel. Let's just set the stage here. These are people who have been conquered by foreign rulers for centuries now. If they do not make a constructive and very serious point of keeping their own national and spiritual identity, they will easily lose it. Throughout the Old Testament, we see prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet showing up and saying to them, do not forget the commandments. Do not forget who you are. Do not forget who you are as people. Do not become assimilated with Assyria. Do not become assimilated Babylon. Do not become assimilated with Egypt. Be your own people. And now Paul shows up and he tells them, oh, no, that's no longer important. centuries of tradition he's just dismissing. We often make the Mosaic law about the human condition, how we fall short, or how we as humanity have fallen short from the standards set by God. To 
the house of Israel is more intimate than that. It's not actually solely about like our human standard. It's about this is who we are as a people. This is, this, is, this is us. This is our spiritual identity. This is our national identity. And you want to get rid of that. That's our cornerstone. That's why he talks about another cornerstone later on. So here, Paul, a very well-trained Jewish scholar and teacher, say, says that the vestiges of national and collective identity that the house of Israel has and, understands them, and uses to understand themselves separate from God, and from, sorry, not separate from God, but separate from the, uh, the people of the world, are no longer relevant, that the Romans who conquer them are now people they should consider as brothers and sisters. The ones who enslave them, the ones that torture them, the ones that crucify them, those people are now your brothers. Which is outrageous, because how can Gentiles just walk into the covenants of Abraham and Moses without any history with that God? Paul suggests that it's because they have that access through Jesus. So we need to understand the covenants of the promise in order to understand this gospel narrative the Abrahamic promises, which then become the Mosaic promises, which become the Davidic promises, which go all the way back to Adam and Eve. In each instance, the covenants of promise are um, trying to draw the people of Israel towards freedom, but their human compulsions reject it. They are taken out of Exodus, and where do they go? They go to a golden calf. They're taken into the promised land, and... Um, they are a tribe led by God, and what do they want? They want kings. They're given the promised land, but then they're taken out into exile. Throughout the narrative, we see, here is your freedom, have it. No, thank you. But the promises remained and the covenants remained because they were established not by what they did, but by their bloodline. It was, in fact... The very instruction, the first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve, go forth and multiply, that would cement, confirm, and fulfill the promises that God instructed them. It was just simply through having kids. If you were a child of the house of Israel, you were part of the covenants of Abraham, simply by multiplication. It's vital then that Jesus is Jewish because he needs to be part of that bloodline. And there's a reason why his blood is so important for us. And we need to understand that God began his story with humanity, with a couple, then with a family, so that we understand that he is a God who wants a family and wants to have a relationship with them, and wants to be intimate with them. And so... We have the old temple, which is separated by the Holy of Holies, uh, where only the high priest can go, then the priests, then the men, then the women, and then the Gentiles outside. Now, the reason why that's important is because that's the very thing that he's going to continue to deconstruct throughout the letter. He says, deconstructs the difference between men and women, deconstructs the difference between... Uh, priests, slaves and masters, 
This is a big point that he makes throughout the letter, that we are actually now no longer this separated people where only one person in an entire nation has access to God in the Holy of Holies, but an entire nation and an entire people now themselves not only go into the Holy of Holies, but the Holy of Holies comes straight at them. Because God dwells with his people, which is what the temple represents. So this is the cool part. Chapter chapter 3, a dwelling place for God. We are brought near by the blood of Christ. We are adopted into this grafting family. So those who are far and those who are near are brought together and brought close by his blood. He pits the hostile against the peaceful, the two against the one. He kills the hostility, the dividing wall of of hostility, which isn't just the dividing wall of a disagreement between Jews and Gentiles, but it's actually the dividing wall of the temple. And what does he do? He brings his peace. The beautiful love of Jesus is one of peace. The dividing wall of hostility is replaced with his peace. It's his loving and kind peace that breaks the divisions that we construct for ourselves as human beings. He abolishes the law of commandments. Now, this is a funny phrase because this is exactly the phrase that Jesus says he didn't come to do on the Mount of, uh, on the Sermon of the Mount. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law of commandments. What on earth is Paul on about then? Well, he says, I haven't come to abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. It's not like things you need to do anymore. Because it's a work of the heart. It's the work of it, the inner thing. It's not the outward ordinances that you need to perform in. You don't need to do circumcision anymore. Because you are all one new man. Now, you have heard this phrase probably a lot of times. All you've got to do is be in church for maybe a year, and then you hear this sort of the one new body, one new man. So we lose the, the potency of these words. It isn't as one body. It is we are all grafted in together as one new man. There is a mystical union that the church has not yet understood and hasn't not yet seen that God is orchestrating. We are going to be as one person and still be diverse in ourselves. How? Well, that's why God's doing it. I have not a clue. But one way I do know that is going to be implemented, it's going to be implemented through the access in one spirit to the Father. We need to understand the family dynamic of the people of Israel because we, then it gives us an understanding of the Father heart of God. Because he's actually not just after a family, he's also after a people. Um, he says, Paul, he says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Again, he's putting the two together to say the same thing in different ways. Yes, we're a family, but we're also citizens. The access to one spirit and the Father, and the reason why this is so important, is because it's not just about a small group of a family. It's a whole nation. A whole citizenship, a whole people that get this access. The magnitude of things is now starting to look a little bit more like the cosmic story he began with. 
He starts with all humanity is grafted in with God and he foreknew them. Now he's starting to talk about citizens. Now he's starting to talk about everybody is grafted in. So then he is making us and building us into the new temple. That's where he ends. He talks like a builder. Looking at my builder pals. It isn't the law of the commandments that is going to be your cornerstone. It isn't, going, we, we, but we also aren't going to be going into the ways of the Gentiles, and that's what he starts talking about next in Ephesians. But what we're going to have as our cornerstone is Jesus. And from that place, he is building his new dwelling place, his new temple. But remember, he started off with saying that Jesus is also all in all. So not only is it Jesus that he's building on, Jesus is surrounding it, Jesus is filling it, Jesus is investing it, Jesus is all around. Something sound like a Christmas song. Um, so this revolution of inclusion is the centerpiece of what he is defining as an apostolic and prophetic foundation that Paul's building it on. A revolution that announces, is announced by prophets long ago when they promised uh, an inclusive messianic story and a change that is then proclaimed by the apostles. The role of the apostles and prophets is big, extensive, and manifold. And we'll talk a bit later about it when he revisits it in the letter. But here he emphasizes that an apostolic and prophetic foundation is one that kills the hostility and, and puts in its place the person of Jesus as its cornerstone. So that we are being built together so that we are the dwelling place of God. <laughs> not a building, not a structure, but the brick and mortar of our skins, our bones, our souls, our minds are the very dwelling place of God. Ha, I know you hear this all the time, guys. I just like, let's, seriously. The God of V.Y. Canis Majoris, that is, where that is just a flicker, the God whose very reverberating existence is holding all things together. The God who could make his home jolly well anywhere if he wanted to, makes us his home. And it's not just as individuals, but it's us as a body, as one new man. So why are the Jews important? Where does God interact with a small tribal nation at the edge of the Mediterranean? Because a story that began with division, hostility, and hopelessness when God is involved doesn't stay there. Also, despite our human impulses for exceptionalism, exclusion, and dividing walls and building walls of hostility, Jesus Christ, through his blood and cross, builds us together into the very dwelling place of God. Because, it's important because the God of the cosmos is a family man who has interwoven his story. He's decided to interwove his story with the messiness of national and individual politics and intrigue and human kerfuffles. 
to bless all nations, as he said to Abraham, the house of Israel should do in the first place in Genesis 22. Not to be exclusionist, exceptionist, but raising one nation over the others to become one circumcision crew, but instead to understand that God is building a household and a temple to include all humanity. The humanity that he foreknew before the foundations of the earth. (laughs) And he chose. And he aims to include in his church that he is the head of and is raised up and is building up into a holy temple and bestows all spiritual blessings on. (laughs) From alienation to dwelling, from division to union, that is the mystery of the gospel revealed in Ephesians. Jesus, we want to see what this new man malachi is all about. What on earth, even? Want to be united. We want to be. We want to understand what having one access in one spirit to the Father actually means. Help us to overcome our differences. Give us wisdom and love and knowledge and understanding to be not swaying with the tides of the world, but to be swaying towards your tide. Where we are built on you as the cornerstone. And the foundation of union and your cosmic wonder (laughs) is what ties us all together. Holy Spirit, wherever there is separation in this church right now, I speak union. Wherever there's fractured relationships, I speak wholeness. Wherever there's difficulty, I speak ease. And would you open up the doors for us to be the patient ones, to be the kind ones, to be the sacrificial ones, to be the ones who start and instigate and give us wisdom, and give us love, and most of all, give us yourself as the cornerstone and access to your spirit and to the Father so that we may build into a beautiful and holy temple. Amen.